Hello, and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we believe that helps us apply them to our lives and draw more power out of them. I'm your host, Kerry Mulstein, and I have with me my frequent and returning and wonderful co-host, uh, and Dr. Andrew Skinner, uh, who's been introduced enough times. We probably don't need to introduce him more. If this is your first time with us, then uh, you can... Just go and listen to any of several episodes with Dr. Skinner to hear that uh, introduction, and I would recommend that you do so. Uh, and maybe we can just have one other uh, announcement. I know we've talked a few times about a lecture on the Dead Sea Scrolls that Dr. Skinner was going to do for the, the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures, and we had to uh, reschedule that because of uh, some MTC commitments that Dr. Skinner has. Uh, and so we've rescheduled it. You tell me if I have this right, Andy, but I believe for uh, July 3rd, 30th. Is that correct? That's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. 7 p.m. July 30th. So if you want to, to join that, uh, then just go to Spark Project. The Spark is spelled with a C, not a K. So S-P-A-R-C project.org and, uh, and join up there and you can hear his lecture. So uh, that's the real time uh, that we'll do it. So anyway, thank you and welcome, Andy. Thank you so very much, Kerry. It's always a pleasure and really a privilege to be able to chat with you. Well, we... We both love discussing the gospel, uh, and uh, we love discussing it with each other and with our audience. So this is just good, clean fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and I, I never say that about my excavation. It's actually good, dirty fun. But uh, yeah, <laughs> playing yeah. in the sand and the dirt. But but uh, we're we're in pristine conditions here. So, um, we uh, we're covering today what, in my opinion, is uh, some of the more important chapters to understand in Scripture. Understanding this charts the course for the rest of the New Testament uh, and really for uh, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant uh, and thus for fulfilling what we will do in our our day and what we're supposed to be doing. And I, I think Dr. Skinner wants to point out some parallels there, but I, I just want to uh, underscore how profound. We're doing uh, Acts chapters uh, 10 through 15. So I just want to underscore how profound those are. And then uh, just ask you, where would you like to start, Andy? Uh, well, first of all, I agree with you. Uh, what really impresses me and has since I think I was serving as a full-time mission is that we see some significant parallels between the Church of Jesus Christ in ancient times and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in modern times. The continuity of doctrine and principle, uh, challenges and uh, successes uh, are really quite amazing. Th this, for me, was a testimony builder uh, when I was a young guy and trying to figure things out and uh, studying the book of Acts, particularly these chapters. Uh, I think I'd like to just offer a few sentences of review that might be helpful to yeah. our listeners. And, yes. uh, and so um, th the setting is that uh, Stephen, one of the seven temporal affairs leaders of the church in Jerusalem, is hauled in before the Sanhedrin, and uh, he tries to present the case for Jesus being the Messiah uh, by reciting, of all things, the history of Israel. Needless to say, things don't go well. And uh, and Stephen ends up actually uh, chastising the members of the Sanhedrin, and it's a pretty stiff chastisement. Yeah, uh, as you remember, 
just uh, thinking about uh, the record in the in the last half of uh, Acts chapter seven, Stephen ends up uh, calling the these leaders of Judaism uh, stiff-necked people, uh, uncircumcised of heart, which is a, a play on the whole idea of circumcision. They are the mm -hmm. circumcised of the Lord. And he says, you're uncircumcised of heart and ears. You're just like your fathers. He says, uh, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? And they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, that is Jesus Christ. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. Uh, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but you have not obeyed it. And this um, this criticism, this chastisement results in two things. Uh, first of all, uh, Stephen is dragged out of the hall where they're meeting or the area where they're meeting, and he's stoned. And one of the famous passages that uh, I think most of our listeners will be familiar with talks about uh, Stephen looking up, being filled with the Holy Ghost and seeing uh, God the Father and Jesus Christ on the right hand of the Father. Uh, I think missionaries still probably use that to, to, to describe the separation uh, of members of the Godhead. And, uh, and then uh, the second thing that happens, of course, is that uh, we're introduced to the future apostle Saul of Tarsus, Paul as he uh, will come to be known. Uh, and Paul begins an intense period of persecution of the Christians. He, he, uh, the text says that he drags off men and women and puts them in prison. Uh, again, uh, referring to Acts chapter 8, chapter 9 of Acts says that uh, he is breathing out murderous threats uh, against the Lord's disciples, and he goes to the high priests and asks for credentials to go to um, Damascus so that he may ferret out these uh, Christian believers. But in fact, what happens is that Paul encounters the Lord on the road to Damascus, and we are told in chapter 9 that he is uh, going to become uh, sort of the leader of that branch of the church, which is known as the Gentile branch of the church. So that's the setting as chapter 10 opens for us. And when we begin to read chapter 10, we find ourselves outside of Jerusalem in a seaport town called Caesarea Maritima. And uh, Caesarea then will be the key to solving the other half of the equation. We've, we've got Paul in place, uh, who is converted to the Savior, and he will become the leader of the, of the Gentile faction of the church. But we don't yet have a Gentile faction. And that's yeah. what chapter 10 helps us to understand is, is uh, um, the first convert to the Church of Jesus Christ, a Gentile who does not have to convert to Judaism before he becomes a member of the church. Because up to this point, the church is 100% Jewish. Yeah. And so chapter 10 is a pretty a significant uh, chapter, which will signal a sea change, I mean, a, a monumental change, in the demographics of the church, um, as well as uh, in uh, the teaching of the doctrine. 
So that's that's the background. That's the setting. Uh, and uh, that's masterful and wonderful. Thank you. I, th- I think it's worth thinking about uh, the timing of things because Paul's actually going to take a, a year or two to prepare himself. He he uh, goes off and and kind of uh, yeah, three three years himself. in Arabia. Yeah. Is what yep. the text says, and and yep. of course we think of Arabia, I guess, as Mecca and Medina, but that's not necessarily the case because there are western parts of that territory yeah. called Arabia, and apparently he spends uh, three years there, being prepared and preparing himself uh, for right. his apostolic responsibilities, and that may be in like modern day Jordan or something. Who knows? But um, yeah. But yeah. I think it's interesting that we get the story of Paul, and now Paul's off. So the Christ has prepared Paul, and now that he's off being prepared, now we get the preparation of the church and the Gentiles, uh, and then the two are going to meet. Well, the well three, said. The, the church, Paul, and all the Gentiles are going to meet. And and I, I just maybe further uh, discuss your comment on, um, uh, you know, the first kind of, Gentile convert who doesn't have to become a, a Jew. That's an important thing because we have a number of people who are described in Cornelius that we're about to encounter here is one of them who are, are believers. They're sometimes called or devout men or something along those lines, fearers yeah. of God. Um, so these are Gentiles who have come to believe in Jehovah and probably with varying degrees of understanding of monotheism and so on. But um, just like we encounter in the church today, actually, but um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there are certainly people who believe, but it is held among Jews before Christianity and after Christ. It is held among Jews that really it, Jews are the covenant people and other people can kind of believe and tag along. But Jews are the covenant people. And as we get um, Jews who are believing in Christ, there's still Jews who, I mean, really, that's what they are. Jews who have accepted the Messiah, but they're still Jews, and they still think of Gentiles in the same way. And it's clear that we have some Gentiles who have come to believe in Christ and accept him, and some Samaritans who have come to believe in Christ and accept him as the Messiah. But the the Jews still are, uh, Jewish Christians are still fairly um, exclusionary, you could almost say, in thinking of uh, others and them as as really the followers of christ uh, or, or jews who have accepted the true messiah and this as you said is going to be a kind of a watershed moment where we see uh with some difficulty peter is going to have to break those walls down yeah so we we uh, of course remember the savior's final commission to the apostles which is to uh, take the gospel of jesus christ to all nations And in order for that to happen, the gospel must go beyond the confines of Judaism, beyond the confines of the Holy Land. And this is what chapter 10 begins to to help us understand. Yeah, I would guess that the, and I could be wrong, but just as you see the story play out, it seems to me that uh, his disciples who hear that commission have in their mind that they are going to go to all the Jews all throughout the world. So that's really what they're doing. They're going to go throughout the world and teach the gospel of the Jews. And it takes what we're going to read here in chapter 10 for them to realize that this is a bigger picture. Yeah, and and maybe um, uh, another uh, helpful comment about the, about the background and the way that the book of Acts is arranged is we go back to Acts chapter one and uh, and where Jesus gives 
this final commission to his apostles before he ascends into heaven. And uh, Acts chapter 8, excuse me, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 provides for us an outline of the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus says to them, they're questioning, is this going to be the time when you restore the kingdom to Israel, when you make Israel a great kingdom like the time that it that uh, we read about in the Old Testament during David's reign. And Jesus says, uh, basically, uh, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father hath put uh, in his own power. In other words, he's in charge of things. Uh, but he says, you're going to receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and then unto the uttermost part of the earth. And that is that is actually the outline of the book of Acts. We uh, first uh, six chapters or so, first six or seven chapters, we see the apostles carrying out their mission in Jerusalem and its suburbs, and then it moves outward and talks about um, leaders of the church preaching and teaching in Samaria. And then finally, uh, as we will see now, uh, the the gospel will go to all of the known world, or at least the world that's known to the apostles, uh, beginning uh, here in, in Acts chapter 11 and 12 and, and onward. So it's, I, it's helpful for me to keep in mind that we do have an outline for the book of Acts, and it's uh, Luke, who is the author is writing a sequel to his gospel, holds pretty closely to that outline that Jesus, in fact, presents to the apostles. So I want to take us to Acts chapter 10 and just look at, at uh, the introductory verses there, using it as a springboard to make some, one hopes, helpful comments. So Acts chapter 10, as we said, we're in a, um, a seaport named Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima, not to be confused with Caesarea Philippi, which is uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a landlocked area. This is right on the coast, uh, a few miles north of modern Tel Aviv, about 30 and miles for, north of ancient Jaffa, the, yeah. w- which was the ancient port of, yeah. of Israel. So, and, and just for our, our audience, uh, as you say, Maritima, if, they, if they'll listen carefully, they'll hear the word maritime in there. And that's really the point sure. that this was a, a port that um, Herod had built, Herod the Great. Um, and uh, so it has become kind of the, uh, the, the way that the Holy Land faces the Roman Empire. That, that's where it is. And that's that's an important element of this story because it's so it's maybe the the door to uh, the Gentiles uh, in the Holy Land is uh, this Caesarea. Yeah. And, I, and I, I'll make a couple of I want to make a couple of comments uh, about uh, Caesarea, but uh, want to do do that after we look at okay. at the introduction of Cornelius. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, there is a certain man in Caesarea, Maritima, called Cornelius. He's a centurion, which means he's a Roman military officer in charge of the Italian regiment. Uh, it says band in the King James Version, but you'll notice that that's uh, in italics. Uh, the, the the actual meaning here is that there's a, a dedicated group of, of uh, soldiers or warriors over whom Cornelius 
rules. And Cornelius is described, and this is the key, I think, to understanding Cornelius's personality. He's described as a, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. And so this is a really, really fine man. He has, as you've pointed out, he's attached himself, like many others in the Holy Land, to one of the synagogues there, which means that he believes uh, in the Mosaic commandments, the Mosaic law, but he has not fully converted to Judaism for whatever reason. And, and he is um, like the centurion that we've read about in Capernaum, who really does bless the lives of the Jews that are living there. And this is Cornelius uh, in Caesarea Maritima. And, and, uh, and maybe uh, and maybe I make too much of this, but I, to me, it, it seems worth noting that he's uh, over the Italian regiment, um, because that, uh, I, I, I may be misunderstanding this, but it seems to me there's probably some prestige to that appointment, because you have uh, bands or regiments from uh, all over the Roman Empire, but if uh, you're part of the Italian band, then you're this is the homeland group, right? So this is not just any regiment. This is a, a group of Roman Romans, as it were. Yeah, and so one assumes that he himself is a Roman. He's not. Yeah. He's not a foreigner to the to the Roman soldiers. I don't think that they would have taken kindly to that, knowing a little bit about uh, yeah. military history in Rome. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, he's he well, is... I, I think Luke with that is is trying to he's done a couple of things to let us know this is no slouch. Right. Both in terms of his piety and in terms of his position in the Roman world, that this is someone to be taken seriously. And so as we see this kind of first conversion, I think it's key to recognize that he uh, excels in both uh, elements, I would say. And and. I think maybe an important lesson out of that is that we're talking about someone who lives in Caesarea Maritima. Um, Caesarea is one of the most impressive cities of the ancient world. It hasn't always been, but it is during this time in history. Uh, we know that Caesarea was originally um, a Phoenician anchorage. That is to say, the Phoenicians used it as a port. It wasn't much of one back in those days in the third century BC, so called Stratos Tower mm -hmm. uh, early on. And uh, the site first becomes, um, it comes to Jewish hands when it's conquered by our old friends, the Hasmoneans, particularly Alexander Janaeus in the year 103 BC. And they want it, uh, the Hasmoneans want this to be able to control the coastline. The problem is that it's not a deep water port. And uh, so uh, when uh, Pompey comes, our old friend Pompey, a very important figure in the history of, of uh, Roman Palestine, he comes in 63 BC, he captures Caesarea, he puts it under the authority of the Roman governor who is living in Syria. And then the area comes under the control of Herod the Great when Herod becomes king in 37 BC. Actually, Herod uh, uh, ta takes control of Caesarea in the year 30 BC. So he's been king for seven years. And he decides, as you mentioned, I think, he wants to make this the showpiece 
or the mm-hmm. showplace of the Roman world. He wants to uh, to uh, bring uh, m- lots of merchandise, and he wants to bring dignitaries uh, to his uh, to his domain. And in order to do that, he needs a deep water port, and so he begins building up Caesarea into the magnificent port city that it will become. And he does that 12 years. He's he's uh, got workers working there. As we know, um, Herod was a great builder, and this was his trademark. Whenever he went to an area, he made much more of it than it was. He built it up and, and lavishes, we could say, spare no expense at times, in building up uh, these these uh, places and becomes known for that. And so uh, by 10 BC, we have this magnificent uh, city and uh, and he he is this site is unique in that it's one of the first, if not the first sites that uh, builds the foundation of the port on pylons that are made with cement that dries underwater. Yeah, it's and, impressive. Uh, it is it is super impressive and and up until just a few years ago uh our uh, technology wizards in the construction industry were not quite sure how this worked but now they think they have discovered the recipe by whereby uh this uh, underwater these underwater pylons drying underwater uh, is allowed, makes it possible to build this city. So the, the and harbor, maybe, then... maybe I'll just add, uh, just for color. Uh, when I, uh, got certified for uh, scuba diving, my certification dive was in this port. Um, and, uh, uh, so I've been down looking at all of the ruins there and I will tell you, it is impressive. It is the, the, what he put together underwater is as impressive it, it as really what he put is. together above the water. It really is. I and, think we and, went snorkeling together there once, if I remember yeah. right. But yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think you're exactly right. The, so uh, the interesting connection with Rome then is that Herod um, really does like to get in good with, with those that are over him. And so he, uh, he builds or has built um, a temple that's dedicated to uh, the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus. It's a huge temple built on the hill that overlooks the the rest of the seaport. And uh, the other thing that he does is so impressive, uh, at least to me, is that C- Caesarea is built on a site without uh, adequate natural water supply. And so he he builds uh, a, a, an aqueduct, an upper section and a lower section of the aqueducts that brings water from Mount Carmel or the base of Mount Carmel, which is 12 miles away, which is a pretty significant thing. And so all of this is to say that this is an impressive city. Um, The sewer system that he constructs uh, uses ocean water to clean it out at high tide. Uh, Herod has a very opulent uh, palace built on a promontory that overlooks the sea. This, this palace on the promontory becomes the residence of the Roman governors who are in charge of all of the Holy Land. Uh, all so, for of, instance, Pilate would be Pilate, there. And Pilate uh, makes his residence there from 26 to 36 AD. Uh, he goes to Jerusalem on different occasions, usually feasts and festivals. But his home base, as it is for other governors of this area, Roman governors of this area, is from 
his base of operation is from here. Uh, interestingly enough, and you know this as well as um, anybody, that when they started serious excavations uh, of Caesarea Maritima, and particularly around the theater area, and by the way, it's a as you know, it's a beautiful theater. It looks out mm-hmm. over the ocean, this beautiful uh, blue water. Uh, the archaeologists discovered an inscription with the name Pontius Pilate, Pontius, Pontius Pilatus, Prefectus Judea. So Pontius Pilate, the prefect or the governor uh, of Judea. Uh, and they still have a replica of that by the theater. And the yeah. theater is still used by Mimazel. So anyway, all of this is to say that this is an amazing city and you can find anything that you want in this seaport uh, city, this seaport town. And the reason that I emphasize that is that even in the midst of great worldliness and great wickedness, we assume, we have this man who's not Jewish, but follows the Mosaic law very, very carefully. He prays, he fasts, he's looking for the truth. And that's then what happens to him as we look at verse 3 of uh, Acts chapter 10, uh, that he was praying the ninth hour, um, three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, according to our time, an angel comes and says um, that uh, his prayers have come up, thine alms are come up for a memorial unto God. Send men to Joppa, 30 miles to the south, and there you'll find one Peter, who just happens to be the president of the church. Uh, President um, uh, of the church, uh, meaning the senior apostle on earth, so says uh, President Harold B. Lee, that we just call him what he is. He's the president of the church. And uh, and so that then begins this series um, of events. And uh, I liked, uh, frankly, I liked the way that you um, that you categorized the life of Cornelius. He's successful. Uh, he's a powerful man with great authority, and yet he, his spiritual life is uh, of equal significance. He is truly someone that God has had His eye on for a very long time. Yeah, uh, and and so we we are immediately drawn into this story because he's such a good guy. And uh, and as at the same time that Cornelius has his vision, we have Peter, the chief apostle, down in Joppa, and Peter also has a a vision, a revelation that is going to change everything uh, about about the church, uh, and that uh, w- I don't think we'll take the time to read uh, verses nine through sixteen, but. Th- that describes the vision that and, and maybe has. before we, we go there if it's all right and, and this isn't super important but i still love in verse seven when cornelius is sending to peter he calls two of his household servants it doesn't say about them but i'm just going to guess that they're jews or, or believers anyway but but what we do know is he calls a devout soldier so when he's going to send to peter he's sending people who understand believe and will respect uh, Peter and what's going on with Peter and so on. And so I think that's uh, that's also worthwhile to, to note that this is happening 
uh, intentionally with believers. And uh, that's going to actually, I think, make it easier for Peter to to do what he's going to do. Yeah. In fact, uh, we know that that uh, according to Jewish law, which is underpinned by the Mosaic law, but it's the oral law now that Jewish people believed was revealed alongside the written law on Mount Sinai, uh, Israelites are not to have contact with uh, Gentiles. They're not to be in the same room together. And so um, we we already encounter an obstacle. And if this man isn't uh, Jewish, then it would have been a problem to to talk to Peter and to get him to come back to to uh, Caesarea with him. And and so I I think you're 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 right uh, that just because of the way that uh, Jewish law forbids contact between devout Jews and Gentiles, um, I, I do. I do want to make mention of the of the description of the vision. Yeah. Uh, it says it says that Peter goes up to the housetop to pray, uh, which makes sense. It's hot. You go up to the roof. You know, you get the sea breeze. And yeah, J- he, Jaffa is right on the coast as well. It was the original port, as you said. So there's a nice breeze there. Yeah, always seems like and mm-hmm. and it says the text says he falls into a trance the greek word there is ecstasis it's the same root from which we get the word ecstasy but it it doesn't just mean um uh an amazement or a trance it, it also carries the the notion the the definition of a vision and so here's the president of the church has a vision and he sees heaven open which phrase is used quite a bit in scripture to describe visions, heavens open, and he sees a great sheet that's described as being knit in the four corners, and it comes down. And it is tempting to see this sheet that's described as knit in the four corners as a prayer shawl, which Peter would have been very familiar with. We don't know that for sure, but uh, it it makes a nice image uh, and would would cert- if it's true would certainly have added to the import of the vision in Peter's mind. Um, now, I'd say most depictions I see of this, most people who talk about it uh, seem to think, uh, and I'm along these lines that, as you said, we don't know, but that makes a tremendous amount of sense. I, there's a there's a lot of uh, agreement that that just makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so the, this heavenly voice says, you know, you're hungry, kill and eat. And Peter's been a good Jewish boy his whole life. And he says, nay, he says, or I've never eaten. Really what he says is I've never come in contact with anything that's unclean or that um, that contradicts uh, Jewish law, Jewish oral tradition or the Mosaic law in Leviticus, uh, you know, chapter 11, those, those chapters there. And then what the today voice, we would call kosher laws, right? He's, yeah. The laws of kosher. Yeah. 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 Uh, and all is and preachers and people and objects. He said, I've never come in contact with unclean things, ritually unclean, ritually impure. I mean, this yeah. is, this is not a hygiene category, right? Okay. Yeah. So, um, the voice says to him three times, uh, what, what God has cleansed, do not call common or unclean. 
and and Peter, you know, has a moment of of doubt about what this vision means, but then it's the spirit that confirms to him as it does to all of us when we have impressions, when we have visions, when we have revelations, when we have even nudges uh, that push us in the right direction, we can be assured that it comes from God. Moroni chapter seven, when things come, when good things come, they, they're coming from God. And uh, and then to confirm this, the, the folks that have been sent by Cornelius show up and uh, and this then is uh, what th this is maybe my favorite part of chapter ten. Um, if I can uh, just read a couple of of uh, lines from, if I can find it, a couple of lines from um, Acts chapter ten. I think I want to start uh, in uh, in verse thirty four. So this is. This is after Cornelius explains to Peter, who has arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius explains what's been happening and the fact that, that an angel has, has sort of uh, manipulated all of this. And, yeah, and, the, Peter, and the timing is impeccable, right? I mean, this yeah. is part of, of Peter realizing it just as he's finishing this vision, the, the guys are showing up there who travel all the way from Caesarea. I mean, the Lord has just arranged this so that Peter can't, miss that the lord's hand is involved and this this is a crude um this is a crude analogy i don't know even why i use it but it's the lord who's moving the chess pieces yeah. according to his grand design he knows yeah. the end from the beginning he knows the future according <laughs> to the book of mormon uh this is <clears throat> As you say, this is or orchestrated by none other than the Lord. And so Peter responds to, to Cornelius's explanation by saying, of a truth I perceive. Or in other words, now I really know that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation that fears him or respects him um, and works righteousness, does what what is according to the commandments is accepted of God. And then Peter teaches some powerful, powerful doctrine to Cornelius, who is not by himself, by the way. Right. There's, a, there's a whole room full of people that are there. Peter uh, Cornelius invites his family members, his closest friends, his dear friends. And, uh, and then um, Peter teaches the following. He says uh, basically that um, that uh, uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, uh, that in him is the way to peace, um, that the baptism which John had been preaching is the ordinance by which um, we become members of the church that God himself anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Jesus went about doing good, performing miracles, healing, uh, especially those that were oppressed of the devil, and that God, our Father in heaven, was with uh, Jesus Christ. And then he says this really critical thing, and, and this is sort of 
looms large on my list of parallels between the ancient church and the modern church. This is verse 39. Peter says, and we are witnesses of all things which he did, which Jesus did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but unto witnesses chosen before God, even to us. Now, here's here's the important principle there. It is now well recognized by uh, Christian scholars of all different stripes or all different denominations that the apostolic foundation of the church was based on eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. I I have just one quote. There are many that could be uh, brought to bear, but one quote from a professor of of, uh, Christianity, the professor of New Testament at Northwest Christian University, and this is the way he puts it. Now, remember, this is a non-Latter-day Saint. Quote, The writings that constitute what Christians today call the New Testament began to be composed perhaps as early as 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The message about Jesus was called the gospel, good news, by early Christians. It was the story Jesus told, excuse me, it was the story of Jesus told by the apostles in their preaching. They were eyewitnesses to the story of Jesus. They were, of course, there were, of course, other eyewitnesses to some of Jesus's activities and teachings, but these others were not on a par with the apostles as eyewitnesses because the apostles were those closest followers who had been with him continually throughout his ministry. They, meaning the apostles, therefore constituted the highest court of appeal when it came to authenticating what Jesus had done or said. When the words and deeds of Jesus began to be written down, it was natural for the Christians to treat these apostolic accounts as scripture in the same way they treated the writings of Moses and the prophets. The New Testament canon is the collection of writings judged by Christians of the first two centuries to depict accurately the life and teachings of Jesus, the primary basis, the primary basis for inclusion in the canon was the proximity of the various authors to the documents to Jesus himself. The apostles were best because they had been eyewitnesses of the accounts. And so this comment here in Acts chapter 10 by Peter, we were eyewitnesses, is one that is found throughout the book of Acts, and it is in fact the foundation of the early Christian church, as New Testament scholars both in and out of the LDS church now recognize. It's the eyewitness quality that only the apostles uh, had, uh, I shouldn't say only the apostles, it's the eyewitness Uh, accounts of the apostles because they held the keys upon which everything else is built. We have it right here. It's no different in the church today. It's the eyewitness account counts of the apostles, the foundation upon which everything else is built, the key holders, those who know the Savior and, and teach his pure doctrine. So that's For me, that is an absolutely critical, maybe foundational 
principle that we need to constantly keep in mind. And we see it in many passages where the apostles, one or the other, says we were eyewitnesses of the Savior. And that's including in some of the you just said that uh, it's some of the epistles, especially Peter's makes that that point very, very largely. But you you already said that. So sorry. Absolutely. All right. So let me get back then. Well, maybe I'll just say, I, I mean, even when it comes to we find that in the early days of the church about Christ, but also about just elements of the restoration. Yeah. Uh, whether it be the three and the eight witnesses or that Oliver is with Joseph when the keys are restored or Oliver or in other cases, Sidney Rigdon are with him when they see Christ and so on and so on. There's always this element of providing witnesses. Uh, and then we have the opportunity to read either the accounts of Peter or the accounts of Joseph and Oliver and then have the Holy Ghost become the additional witness. Uh, and I think that's a key element. Well, and that's a great segue to verses 44 through 48, the last mm-hmm. verses of Acts chapter 10. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, quote, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. So the eyewitness uh, testimony of Peter brings the witness of the Holy Ghost, the third member of the Godhead, and the church is changed forever. Because not only does the Jewish element claim to have the witness of the Holy Ghost, claim to be able to repent and rely on the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it's now this new element, uh, the the Gentile element uh, of the church. And this has to be Peter that does this, right? In verse 48, where he commanded them to be baptized. If this had been anyone else, they'd have to say, let's go check with Peter. But Peter is the one who can recognize everything that's going on, recognize this is from God, act on the inspiration he's receiving, and saying, this is what's happening. Let's move forward. So four things uh, to, to point out. Number one is the point that you just made. Even though Paul has been prepared and chosen as the uh, apostle to the Gentiles, we read that back in chapter 9, verse 15 of the book of Acts. So even though Paul is the one that's been chosen to be the leader of, of the Gentiles, it's Peter who receives the vision. It's Peter who goes to Cornelius. It's Peter's testimony that invokes the witness of the Holy Ghost upon this entire group. Why? Precisely because he is the one man on earth who holds the keys of the kingdom uh, after Jesus ascends into heaven. So that's, again, it's hard for me to overemphasize the importance of, of of the stewardship bound nature of revelation. Yeah. Um, and and this we see. Uh, second thing to note is that this event, Gentiles being given the gospel, is revolutionary in the history of the church. 
It changes the demographics of the church forever. A third thing to point out is that it really does fulfill prophecy, uh, the prophecy of Jesus in chapter 20 of Matthew. Uh, the first are going to be last and the last are going to be first. And we're going to read about, uh, all of us read about in Acts chapter 13 during Paul's first missionary journey that the that the gospel goes now to the Gentiles on a priority basis rather than the, the Jewish people. That doesn't say that God doesn't love the Jewish people. It's just to say that Jesus's prophecy is fulfilled. The first shall be last and the last shall be first until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So that third. And then the fourth thing, and, and maybe <clears throat> this is a second parallel or we've been talking really about parallels all along here to the modern church, but this is this is a stark one. This is a an amazing parallel, uh, and it comes um, by way of President Gordon B. Hinckley, who in February of 1998 uh, visited Africa and taught the African saints about God's love for them, and I'm reading a couple of excerpts from the church news, February the 28th, 1998, which I think are so instructive. Quote, this is President Hinckley speaking to this, this group in Africa. Quote, in 1978 came the revelation 20 years ago concerning offering the priesthood and every after the testimony here that that was inspired. And that was a revelation from God. I was there. I was an eyewitness to it in the house of the Lord. How grateful we are. And then President Hinckley went on to tell of the story that we've just been recounting. The Church News says, quote, President Hinckley went on to tell of the Apostle Peter and the conversion of Cornelius, according to the account in the 10th chapter of Acts. Peter says he perceives that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he feareth God, where the righteousness is accepted of him. And then President Hinckley says, that, my beloved brothers and sisters, describes you. I've had that testimony reconfirmed in my heart on this trip, as I've met with you and many others, that all are alike unto God. We are. I repeat, we're all of a great family, a marvelous family, the family of the living Christ, worshiping him together. So to me, this is a pretty close parallel to the 1978 revelation on priesthood is a pretty close parallel to Peter's revelation on the expansion of the church in the first century. Uh, and, and maybe I can just build on that a little if it's all right, Andy, not just sure. for that, but what I, I don't know what's in the future, but I suspect there are things in the future. Um as I think, as I put myself in Peter's place, and that's part of what I like to do, right? It's part of what makes the scriptures real for me is to put myself in their place. Um, my guess would be that Peter had never been to Caesarea before. Uh, it's a very, very Gentile place. Maybe the Savior took them there to preach to some Jews there or something. And, and if so, it doesn't really negate what I'm saying. But this is a Gentile place. It's not the kind of place Peter is going to hang out in. Um, and yet he, he because Cornelius comes or Cornelius sends his servants, Peter goes and he, he, he feels this is from God. So I have to go there. And my guess is he's not fully comfortable there. Um, it's probably a little bit mind blowing for me he has to kind of bend his mind a little bit, open it up to some new things to go into Caesarea and then to go into the 
house of a Gentile, even though it's a devout Gentile, to go into the house of a Gentile and then to teach them about Christ and see the spirit come on them and to say they can be baptized. This is mind bending for Peter. He is opening himself up to all sorts of things that are not what he had thought of before and that I'm sure he wasn't initially comfortable with. He, But he does it because that was what God wants him to, to do. And I think that happened for a lot of people in 1978. Um, they had to to kind of rethink their assumptions, open their mind up to go to places they weren't uh, expecting to go right then and all sorts of other things. And my guess would be that we have days ahead of us where w- things are going. The Lord's going to ask us to do things and we're going to have to say, that is not what I thought. That's not how I thought this was going to go. I'm I'm not feeling like uh, that's not wasn't on my bucket list of things to do, uh, all sorts of things. We're just going to have to open our minds up and be ready to go wherever it is the Lord takes us as he moves his work forward in a marvelous manner. And we're going to see this is the beginning of moving his work forward in an incredible and marvelous manner as it was in 1978. Uh, I think there's probably more of that ahead of us in one way or another. And we just have to be ready to open our minds. Well, for me, the lessons uh, parallel uh, somewhat of what you you just said. Uh, thank you for that. When I reflect on the great change in the church in Peter's day, and then the pretty close parallel of the change of the church of Jesus Christ in our day, now 45 years ago, um, it highlights the fact that divine decree determines doctrine and practice in all mm-hmm. dispensations. It's not what I think uh, and no offense intended, not what you think, but it's what the Lord thinks is best for the kingdom. And so that that divine decree comes from apostles and prophets, those who hold the keys that receive revelation in all dispensations. Sweeping changes come quickly when the Lord decrees it to happen. Uh, and sometimes, as you said, great changes bring great challenges uh, we we saw, again, a parallel of that, I think, in 1978, where there were some challenges with some, you know, the thinking on some people's parts and and uh, the, the fact that the Lord is serious when he says uh, black or white, bond or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile, all are alike unto God, quoting from the Book of Mormon. Um, sometimes um, we need a dose of reality, spiritual reality, to help us see that we all belong to our Father in heaven, that we are sons and daughters of of, uh, divine parents, eternal parents, and that there is tremendous joy that comes when the Holy Ghost, when we live worthy of the Holy Ghost to come and confirm upon us uh, that we are seeing the Lord's will being manifest through revelation. Um, for the sake of time, I, I do. I want to to um, ask two questions. Uh, number one, what what effect did this new uh, revelation, this new policy, have on the church in Peter's day? And I can think of two uh, significant uh, effects, two results. Number one, as recorded in the first. A few verses of chapter 11 of Acts, an internal dissension, internal division develops in the in the church. Uh, 
these are the words. And what is often called the, the first Jerusalem council, right? Where they say, okay, we've got to decide something. And they all gather in Jerusalem to decide. Well, yeah, but even before that, in, oh, sorry. in, in chapter 11, uh, we see uh, the apostles and prophets. So this is verse one of chapter 11. And the apostles and, and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, and by the way, you always go up to Jerusalem as you well know, they that were of the circumcision contended with Peter. So you're exactly right. P uh, Peter didn't think he was, I mean, I don't think Peter thought he was going to have an easy time of this, but to have your associates in the Quorum of the Twelve and other church leaders contend with you must have been a challenging thing for Peter to absorb, but he did it. Uh, they said, thou wentest into the men uncircumcised and didst eat with them. In other words, you've broken, you know, Jewish law. What's going on here? But Peter, and I might add patiently, I think, but Peter patiently rehearsed the matter from the beginning and expounded it by order unto them saying, and then he tells his story about the trance and so on. And then verse 18 when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. And that's a great lesson for me. Uh, I mean, I, you know, uh, different, I'm sure, in the Quorum of the Twelve today, different opinions are heard. But when uh, the voice of the Lord manifests the will of the Lord, then I've been told by reliable sources that every member of the quorum lines up uh, with the will of the Lord. And that's what I see happening here in the early yeah. church. The second thing. Well, and, and maybe could I just uh, add just one yeah. thing from the, the verse right before that, because I see a, a, a parallel as well. I, I love at the end of verse 17, when Peter, uh, this is the last thing he says, trying to convince them that he did God's will. And he says, what was I that I could withstand God? Right. And and basically saying, God, God told me this. What am I supposed to do? I almost hear Joseph Smith saying, I'd seen a vision and I knew it and God knew it. What, what am I supposed to do? Right. What I have to I have to stay true to that. And and I, I think Joseph found himself in that position a number of times. Well, God told me to do this. What am I supposed to do? Quit bugging me. I've, I've got to do this. And that's what Peter's saying. I, I I'm sorry, but I have to do this because it's it's God. Well, I remember hearing from, again, a reliable source, I don't need to ex disclose it, that um, President Kimball, when the announcement was made about the revelation on the priesthood in 1978, received hate mail. Mm. And uh, and him saying, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't do, I didn't want this. I, I didn't want this to happen. And what could I do? This was the revelation that was given, and all of the members of the twelve felt it so powerfully. What what could I do other than what the Lord wanted me to do? And and my heart at that moment went out to prophets, seers, and revelators who do what Heavenly Father and his, and His Son want them to do. They didn't ask for the bad treatment that comes. Yeah. And I think that's what he meant when he, he said, it. I didn't want this. He didn't want to yeah. offend people. He didn't want people to hate him. Uh, yeah. Not that he didn't want the priesthood to go forward, but exactly. Uh, but he didn't want that. But 
and you hear President Nelson say the same thing, like, well, we're going to have to say what God told us to, even if it's unpopular. It's we're not in charge. God's in charge. Well, and the second thing that I take away from uh, at least the immediate thing that I take away from this sea change is that the the name of the church uh, is first mentioned or first given in Antioch. Again, that same mm-hmm. chapter 11 of Acts, verses 25 and 26, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus to seek Paul. And when he had found him there, he brought him to Antioch. And it came to pass that the whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. What do you what do you do with this <clears throat> organization that is now changed in unbelievably it's no longer a sect of judaism which i think some people probably regarded christianity as i think that the christians thought of themselves that way initially and yeah and and so uh you know we're just one of the 22 or 24 other sects of judaism that joseph joseph um Josephus mentions uh, in his writings, but not anymore, because the the relationship now has been severed in the minds of these people. And so what do you call this new group? Well, they are followers of Jesus Christ. Before they had been called the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. So the way. Now they're Christians. To hear more about this topic from Andy and myself, Listen to part two.